Hello, thanks for tuning in to the Overhear.app podcast. The Overhear app geotags commissioned recorded poetry in locations that users can go and collect. The app is designed to allow users to experience place and location through a poetic perspective and to think poetically about space and the narratives that location can bring. And this podcast speaks to some of the poets that we've commissioned to get some thoughts and feedback on how they write about location and space and how they approach the commissions that we asked them for. My name is Tom Peel. I am the founder of Over Here, and also with me is one of our co-directors, Kibria Mehaban, and she will kick things off. Dr. Gregory Ledbetter is a poet, critic, and a familiar face to anyone involved in the poetry scene in Birmingham. He's the author of four poetry collections, the most recent of which is Mask Work with Nine Arches Press, which we'll be talking a bit about in this episode. As well as being a wonderful poet, he's also a professor at Birmingham City University and taught, among others, our very own Adrian B. Earle, who regularly cites him as an inspiration. Another detail that comes up later is that Greg practised as an environmental lawyer for some time. Stay tuned to hear what that's got to do with poetry. We first got to work with Greg when he wrote a poem for Connolly's Wines during the 2019 Birmingham Literature Festival. Welcome to the show, Gregory Ledbetter. Thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Lovely to be here. We've also got Kibria with us, who takes the role of poetry guru for the Over Here podcast. <laughs> oh no, I really hate it when you introduce me like that. <laughs> well, I'm the lay person and you're... Uh, yeah, sorry. It's too much pressure already, isn't it? <laughs> it's a good title. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll take it for my Twitter bio, but... Um... <laughs> Um, so congratulations on your release of Mask Work, which came up very recently. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, digital applause. Digital applause, uh, yes. We can add canned, <laughs> canned laughter in afterwards or anything like that. You um, hear it better on radio, is this? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we've been um, trawling through and finding all sorts of things that relate to location and walking around and ambling about and finding places that are poetic. I guess to start with, though... I'm not sure what, what point to do, but my, my favourite, which you may know from your reading at the Poetry Birmingham Literary Journal event, uh, in which you gave the option to the audience at the end as to whether they wanted to hear a poem about a Commodore 64 uh, or something else that I can't remember, because I was so <laughs> I was like, oh my word, a poem about a Commodore 64. It's my dream come true. Um, and, uh, and obviously finding myself now as someone that runs a mobile app and just sharing in the, uh, the journey that, that we've all come on in the last 20, 30 years from the Commodore yeah. to where we are now is maybe a good starting point as we're a technology platform. Can, can you um, tell us a little bit more about your relationship with the Commodore to start with? Mm, yeah, sure. So the, the poem you, you mentioned is called Personal Computing. And it, it, um, it's, it's about my dad, uh, but also about his relationship and therefore our relationship as a family with computers, because he was a very early adopter, as it were, of, of the new tech, as it was really from the late 70s, early 80s. So... Um, and so that, that poem really is an account in, on one level of that sort of 
history. So starting with the VIC-20, um, which wasn't so much fun as the <laughs> Commodore 64, but it was a Commodore. Um, and, uh, and then on to the Commodore 64, which was such a big step up at the time. Mm. And it was... Uh, you know, you, you had the little sort of cassette deck next next to it, which is where you, you loaded software, you know, and it was a tape. Uh, and you pop that in and you'd, you'd, you know, you'd press the buttons so that you'd sit and watch the screen go mad yeah, for a yeah. while while it loaded. So, so all of that uh, was kind of part of part of my own history and, you know, the rapid development of computing in, in my own lifetime and, 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 and as a witness to it through my dad's interest in it, um, that all kind of connected with um, remembering him. He, he, he died in 2013. He had vascular dementia in his latter mm-hmm. years. And, and so the poem references all of that too. And that, that, that sort of brings, yeah, it brings those two histories together, I suppose, that poem, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um... Well, first of all, the, the idea of a tape cassette having anything on it other than audio was yeah. kind of bizarre. You could st- store data as well. That's right. And, and yeah, that loading screen that you'd have to wait about 15 minutes for. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And it was kind of hypnotic and it would make this strange sort of noise, which again, the poem, the poem refers to mm-hmm. as well. You know, you could sit, sort of sit there and just just sort of, I don't know, enter a, a rather strange sort of state, just watching and listening to this thing. And, um, yeah. If you want to hear Greg reading Personal Computing, you can find it in the recording of the launch event for Maskwork on the Nine Arches Press YouTube channel, which we'll link in the description. We highly recommend listening to the whole thing, but you can find this poem specifically at around the 44 and a half minute mark. Yeah, and and of course, when it did finally load, there was such a sense of reward. Yes. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. everyone everyone talks Delayed about gratification. Exactly, yeah. exactly, and um, everyone talks about you know the little dopamine hits you get mm. when you click things now, but. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, it was yeah. times twenty, wasn't it? When you've been waiting for fifteen, waiting for fifteen minutes. <laughs> Absolutely, and that kind of ties yeah. in with a little bit of what we're trying to do over here. In that, we want to not give you something instantly. Uh, mm. We want to lead you somewhere first and yes. take you meandering around a uh, city, and then to get that yeah delay. What was yeah. that word? Delayed gratification, Kimberly. That's it. Yes. <laughs> For anyone who is like me and was wondering, uh, the original C64 could take a solid half hour to load a cassette. And that's if it managed to do it the first time around. That delay is really quite important and I, I, it, because poetry slows you down mm. in a way. And, it, and it's about not so much a deferred... Um, a deferred or delayed gratification, but I suppose a continually released mm, <laughs> gratification. Mm. So, you know, in poetry, the end is in the means. Yeah. And I think that's the same with the idea of walking around city, for example, you know, and may, having that as part of the experience in order to get to these other points, you know, uh, where something else is, is released and that new kind of experiential dimension opens up with the po- with the release of the poem and yeah, yeah, yeah i like yeah, that idea the, yeah yeah the process itself is the thing right it's not like it we're is. trying to get to an end point 
Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly right. The end is in the means, definitely. Greg has another poem in his collection called Derive, which touches on a lot of these ideas. Walking through a city without a set path or a destination. We didn't get to talk about it here, but I have written up some of my thoughts on it in a blog available to read on the Overhear website. Does that tie into any of your other, um, the way that you write, Gregory? Mm. Do you find that uh, writing is, a, is that kind of process for you? Very much so, yeah. So I, I think the, the idea that each element within a poem should be, should, should be a kind of a, an awakening contribution to the whole. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. that, that it's not just about a punchline. Mm. You know, it's about mm. every, every word, every relation to every other word that that word has. Um, you know, it, it's a holistic thing and one that is put in motion from the, well, from the beginning of you know, the composition of the poem, to, uh, uh, but it doesn't end really. It carries on through each reading of the poem as well, mm. hopefully. I mean, that's the idea. I, I, I personally value, I value poems that um, reward rereading, shall we say. And, mm. you know, that's what I, I try to, uh, it's, it's just what I, I'm inclined to write. You know, I'm, I'm drawn to things that will keep on giving in that sense i suppose and and the kind like i said the kind of poetry that i value is that kind of poetry yeah Mm. very nice yeah so yeah so so each each element of a poem is uh i suppose you know like i said kind of keeping the attention awake hopefully or that's Mm. certainly what i what i'm aiming for um um, it, it does a dual thing, really. It, it keeps the attention awake, but it's also a kind of hypnosis. So, mm-hmm. so there's a kind of, but there's a paradox here. You're kind of hypnotizing your reader awake, in, in a sense, <laughs> it, yeah. into a, a kind of higher state of alertness and attentiveness, really, I think. Yeah. So that's the kind of paradox that I'm, I'm aiming at in my work. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that really came across. I, when I was like reading the collection, it really like you really get the sense that, you know, every single word is so carefully chosen and almost it almost felt yeah, it almost felt like reading a book of spells or something. It was that that weird like that sort of now transcend <laughs> And you and you talk about it as well, the the like the um the magic in language kind of thing. Uh yeah. like even at the launch I remember you um you mentioning it in terms of like the root of words in terms of grammar and here i'm referring again to the event recorded and posted on the nine arches press youtube channel you can hear greg reading grammary and talking about how its meaning learning of an occult nature is linked to the words grammar glamour and grimoire around the 32 and a half minute mark yeah that's right i, I mean i'm very interested in the, the just the strange power of of language um, to, to, to really alter us, you know, you know it, it alters our minds. You know, I mean, it, it's, um, it, it is psychotropic, you know, I mean, that word is sort of used often in relation to sort of uh, chemicals, you know, mm. drugs or whatever, but, but actually language has that power too. And of course, most, most use of language isn't necessarily psychotropic in intent uh, i suppose but but can be just a kind of basic social signaling you know and all that so i'm not sort of saying all language is doing one thing but the kind of 
the kind of effects that I think are possible through language and that I'm most interested in pursuing in, in my own work as a poet, those are the, 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 the psychotropic effects, really, that sort of open, open up kind of new orders of experience, hopefully. That's what I'm chasing. Mm. I, I found... Yes, so attending to something in a new way, like you're saying the, the, the writing on the page says, read me differently or, or hear me differently. And I yeah. think that's really tied into what we want to do with space and location. Yeah. It's like, just come to this place and, and ignore the narrative that you're expecting yeah. and, and, and pause and reflect and hear something else. Yes. Um, which I, I, I'm not, we've set ourselves quite a big task. <laughs> that's <laughs> a good test though. in how it's we're doing it yeah i thank yeah. you um and so maybe we could talk about your poem for over here um yes. which was based at Connolly's wine uh mm. in the well on the fringes of the jewelry quarter which we commissioned for birmingham literature festival terroir a tasting i didn't expect livery street in the bowl of a burgundy glass on the nose Something sour as I step at first through a subway. Something gouty, a boiled kidney, and something spilt on a cold tile a chemistry teacher would call the colour of straw. Piquant as iron, that's livery, I suppose, gravied with onion. Then I get the grumble of a train, delayed, exhaust, but not diesel. Unleaded. Yes, that's right, and 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 it's called terroir because I, you know, it's already built into the well, place and location is already built in, as it were, to the narrative of wine itself, mm. <laughs> and and I wanted to bring that out in the in the poem, and and of course because there's a kind of ironic, you know, there's a sort of humour underlying the poem as well because. <laughs> Obviously, the that kind of inner city location is not necessarily associated with the uh, traditional meanings of the word terroir, which are all to do with you know minerality in the soil and so on and so forth, and the you know the breezes blowing in from the sea, you know atmospheric <laughs> conditions. So, so I wanted to sort of trip triple that up and to bundle it together in a, in a new, as we've been saying, a new take mm. on, on the lo the location and indeed the idea of of uh, terroir. So another way of looking at that location. And, you know, it's like, um, you know, Heraclitus says, you know, you never step into the same river twice. Yeah. Uh, and it's absolutely the same with, with place and location. Generally, you know, we, in our own kind of infinite complexity, are one of the infinitely complex variables uh, about that kind of relation. Um, and it is a relation. I think when we talk about space and place and location, a lot of our vocabulary around these things sounds quite static. Mm. But in fact, it's intensely dynamic, isn't it? Mm -hmm. These, the, you know, place and location, these are, in fact, relationships. They're not a static thing. They're not a fixed thing. Um, and, and so that kind of connectedness is one of the things that I you know, wanted to try and play with, really, in, the, in, in that poem, making those connections between all those disparate elements, some of which you've, you've mentioned in the locale there, uh, to, yeah, to, to enable a new kind of um, uh, experience of 
that dynamic relation that goes under the name of place. <laughs> uh, it, you know, um, obviously, uh, in relation on this occasion to to uh, Connolly's and Arch Thirteen. It was great, and I, I mentioned some of the pictures on the walls and so on and so forth in there, you know, because all of that was... And again, I suppose mood comes into this, because one of the things... I mean, it's like when you go into a bar, that, that you know, a well-thought-out bar is trying to create a certain mood. Mm. Uh, and so that's all about these dynamic... the dynamic relations of place and location, isn't it? And all these sort of psychological currents that are running around, you know, through... Decor, imagery, mm -hmm. lighting, and so on. Um, and yeah, I mean, thinking about the urban space more generally, I, I think people have been writing about this a long, a long time now. But it doesn't always <laughs> kind of manifest in practice. But how we think about urban spaces and indeed any spaces as um, things that are made, you know, not just mm -hmm. sort of randomly co composed, but but th things that are shaped and therefore shape mood you know in just the same way that a particular room might you know a particular urban landscape might too and um yeah i know planning officers do try and <laughs> pay attention to these things and, and developers even sometimes <laughs> um but um but it but it's it's you know it's a difficult task of course and there's always cost playoffs in, in the real world but mm. um but it's the same sort of thing it's it's about how all of these elements contribute to the experience and the mood and that can you bring your own mood but it, you also are are shaped your mood is shaped in some way by your environment inevitably yeah i don't know if you're aware of ian mcgilchrist's book the master and his emissary oh i am it's oh, a great book yes. so all of this ties in to that book it, in, it, it in really so does. many ways that, that okay well i'm not sure if we can summarize that book for our, <laughs> our, our um audience and then and then uh, you you try <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's about why the brain's hemisphere is divided um mm. and it says that we attend to the world in with with two different viewpoints the left hemisphere mm. and the right hemisphere and each inhibits the other in some kind of a way and so we're kind of i guess we're talking about language and and certainly attending to things in a very right hemisphere kind of way, which is interconnected, dynamic, uh, in relationship, um, are all very right hemisphere ways of seeing the yeah. world. Yeah. And then you've maybe, I was just thinking about the, your, um, your, your planning developer yeah. uh, and, and maybe creating a stereotype of your kind of left <laughs> hemisphere activated um, uh, yes. developer who's who's thinking about short-term wins and mm. immediacy and what what it can capture and mm. and those sorts of things and and inevitably within development and and within spaces when in urban spaces you have that playoff of maybe the high ideal of what we want the future to look like mm. but then it all being subject to actually something more immediate than that or more temporal mm. than that you know i guess cladding on housing apartments is a very yeah, yeah. Uh, an example of that absolutely um, uh, with no thought for, uh, well the, the the future then coming into being and being very much against all of those choices uh yes and, and forming something very differently yes 
And of course, and just to add to that, yeah, the, the future, the nothing dates quicker than the future, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah go back to the Commodore uh, 64 then. We, we absolutely <laughs> are, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I used to be uh, an environmental and planning lawyer, actually, in a okay. former life. Right. Uh, I, I worked on Cornwall Road for five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so, I, I had, yeah, I had some some sort of insight into the way these these things worked. And, and you're right, there's that sort of um, interplay between the practical and, you know, the more uh, visionary, perhaps. A lot, of, a lot of the clients we worked for were were developers. But um, at the same time, I think, well, one of the great dangers in all of this it lies in the idea that you can plan for everything. Yes. And actually, you really can't. Uh, there's, um, there's a good phrase for this from the uh, philosopher and economist um, F.A. Hayek. He calls it the synoptic delusion, the idea that you can see everything in synopsis and therefore that you've got all the things at your disposal in terms of knowledge that will enable you to design the perfect whatever it may be yeah. and of course you look at the, the history of urban development in in britain alone you know you think in birmingham actually you know all the 60s development mm. that kind of died and had to all be be sort of redone in the 80s and 90s as it were so uh, and, and you find stories like that you know all around um, mm. the uk and indeed the world so so it, it's actually well, I think one of the key things, and this goes for poetry as much as for urban development, um, you, you're kind of trying to work with the unknown as well mm-hmm. and leave room for the unknown and leave room for new forms of life and uh, things that are not yet part of our consciousness. Yeah. You're trying to leave room for them to come out, to, to emerge, perhaps in that kind of environment that you're creating, whether it's within the poem or within the city. I think both have to create space that allows for things as yet unforeseen to grow mm-hmm. and to develop and to, to emerge. Um, yeah. I have a feeling that Adrian would be furious at us for failing to mention how this links into technology too. So I'm going to interject here with a bit of a tangent. Something the Overhear crew talk about a lot is emergent behaviour, the unpredictable results of different elements of a system interacting with each other that you can't foresee just from looking at the individual elements themselves. For our interests specifically, the unpredictable ways communities of users will utilise the technologies at their disposal. One example is the way Facebook users repurposed the ability to react to posts with various emotions as a way to conduct polls between themselves. Or how the duet function on TikTok led to the creation of a whole new genre of online video, on that platform and elsewhere. When we talk about the future of over here as a team, one thing that really excites us is imagining the different ways in which people can use these features we put into the app. But what really, really excites us is the stuff we know we can't imagine yet. Anyway, uh, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Yeah, I mean, like that puts me in mind so much of the poem in the collection. Uh, I don't know if I'm saying this right, but Bioma, we are talking oh, yes. about. Yeah, and that, like that. I think the second to last stanza where you're saying something like um, our daily task of, of new invention, that sort of, yes. like, it's it it's never finished. Like, the work is never yeah. done. City's never done. The poem's never done. 
Mm. Yes. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Cabrera. And, and that poem is very much about that precisely that kind of growth and the sort of the unexpectedness and, you know, the kingfisher going along the, the river coal, <laughs> you know, at the, at the end of that poem, <laughs> which was based on something I saw, you know, I mean, the, the coal is not always uh, 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 unpolluted, shall we say, <laughs> in some of those stretches. <laughs> and I, and I, I was walking down uh, one stretch um, one day when, you know, suddenly this this sort of amazing blue light just flies arrows straight as they do um, all the way down, you know, the river. And, and I thought, actually, that's, again, that kind of ecological uh, dimension of what we've just been talking about, allowing things to grow, allowing the unforeseen to emerge. Um, that lies behind biodiversity policies, mm. of course, mm -hmm. you know, because what you're doing ideally in biodiversity is not saying, brilliant, uh, we're going to have this, this and this happen. What you're doing is creating conditions in which who knows what may happen, but it's going to be life. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be lots of life, you know, and that is... That that is kind of that links up all of these things that we're talking about. Bjorma is a poem in mask work that talks about the origins of Birmingham as a city and as a word, linking the constant evolution of the language of the city with the continuing evolution of the city itself. Actually, I think the urban space, the poem, the ecological dimension—that is the the common uh, common factor, really. Yeah. And it seems like mythology ties into this as well in mm. the sense that that is a, a space for creating something new and without the, the usual boundaries of, of fact to, mm. to explore an idea or a, a space. Yeah, it's that thing of when anyone's coming up with an origin myth, it's not really about the beginning, it's about where we are now and like how yes. we want to define yes. that, right? That's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think that the 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 myth um, or the mythic, you know, is something again that is constantly ongoing within us. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, it's. It, I think it's a kind of people talk about myths in lots of different ways, but the, one way is to sort of consign them to the past. You know, oh yeah, myths is something like you know the infancy of humankind. You know, lots of people used to write like this about myth. I I, I don't. Go along with that at all i think the the same organs of myth as it were are active within us now uh, and indeed are, are are fundamental to our grasp our apprehension of the world and the spaces around us so i think we're constantly and again this relates to space as you say very closely because and place and location because that storying of place as it were is also the, a kind of myth making um, you know you're creating new stories of place and and also um, that in itself uh, that, that, that sort of naming process that, that is so fundamental to poetry again this is where it links with that too storying naming myth making all of these things are sort of in play in a relation to our environment in the broadest sense of that word, yeah. Mm. And hence, you know, I love etymology, you know, and, and you know, the Bjorma poem plays on that a lot, for example, in relation to the name of Birmingham, you know, mm. Bjorma Ingerham, 
you know, the, 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 the place of Bjorn as people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, you burrow back into a word, the history of a word, you, you find all these kind of relays and all these kind of possibilities, and it kind of lays bare the making of the reality that we inhabit through language. I think that's one of the things I love about etymology, um, mm-hmm. because it, it just exposes that process um, and looking at the history of, of language. And again, it, it loosens that sort of sense of fixity, that, that everything's sort of, you know, that the familiar world is the only possible world, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, which, of course, is not, not the case. And I, I find that hugely liberating to sort of bear that in mind and to find that constantly in the history of language and, and the history of poetry and the practice of poetry. That idea of the of, of etymology there telling a story kind of makes me think of it. Suddenly, words become more pictographic uh, in an odd way. Like mm. um, other languages, literally have stories behind their characters. Yeah, uh, and we have stories behind the whole word, maybe. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, of course, if you go back in in European languages as well, the the runic, um, the futhork, you know, the, the runic alphabet, each mm. letter. Uh, signified, uh, it was, it's essentially a name, you know, um, Feo, Ox, you know, or uh, Ansus, God, you know, there's lots of these sort of uh, elements um, that are there. So the naming of of the alphabet, um, you know, in, for example, the, the, the runic Futhork, that in itself is, is an example of precisely what, what you're talking about. But but yeah, the, the, the idea that a word... Or, or even a letter is a kind of sigil, you know, a kind of sign that, that um, an emblem of a whole way of thinking, perhaps actually mm-hmm. an entire mythology, even, you know, in the name of one letter. I mean, you know, in, in Hebrew, the, the Aleph, mm. you know, is is said to contain all the other letters <laughs> of the of, of the alphabet, and that, that's something I play on a little bit in, in my poem Tree Script. In, in mask work, which fuses um, kind of tree law with alphabet law, because anciently these are these are connected. Actually, you know, it, you look at the the ancient Oum script, and they are associated with with trees. You know, each letter. Um, so it plays on on these things and kind of um, fuses them into its own alloy. <laughs> mm. that, uh, well, that's probably a wrong, wrong, uh, wrong kind of metaphor for a tree, but you, you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> tree script is another one of the poems Greg read at his launch, so you can find it in the video of that at the thirty-seven and a half minute mark. Gregory, for our listeners then who are thinking about writing and writing about location and space, uh, obviously we've gone through loads of uh, interesting places in this conversation already, but what starting points would you give people if they're sat on a park bench or in an urban area or wherever it might be mm. to begin getting some ideas down? I think, I think it begins with attention and attention to what you can sense However, whatever that may be, in whichever sense it, it comes to you through, you know, what you see, hear, smell, taste even, mm. uh, touch. So I think atten- attending to what 
to what you see is, is the beginning of all things here. Um, but at the same time, that applies to your own inward state as well. Yeah. And paying attention and taking seriously your own, your own moods, however fugitive, fleeting or strange they may be, um, I, think, I think that's really important, actually. Because, again, there's so much... There's so much in our culture, human culture generally, though, perhaps, that tells you not to attend to certain things. Mm. <laughs> um, and I suppose one of the things that makes poetry so interesting and, and, and maybe so dangerous, actually, as well, is, is that it encourages you, actually, or it does not for me anyway, um, to, to pay attention to all these, these things that we're often encouraged to neglect. Um, and that goes for the inward life, uh, you know, like I said, all of those inexplicable uh, kind of um, moments in our own mm. moods. Um, mm. There's a kind of, there's a kind of implicate knowledge in that potentially um, that I think is there to be released. And so I would say attention to that outer reality and the more you, the more you penetrate, the more you look. Actually, the more you go into the inward space. The more you look at the outer, the more you go into the inward. <laughs> Again, mm -hmm. I think that's another paradox that will come into play with that kind of heightened form of attending, mm -hmm. noticing, and then then you get into a kind of uh, inductive loop where you, that heightened attention then feeds into, as I say, the heightened attention to your own states of mind and feeling and then that too leads on to new forms of seeing and so before you know it you're in this kind of amplified sphere of attention and that's where poems are most likely to emerge so again it comes back to creating the right conditions i suppose mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in which poetry might might emerge and for me that's those those conditions are certainly where my poems tend to emerge from. Mm -hmm. I've been uh, looking into some meditative practices recently as well, where they talk about this attending, certainly um, mm. attending to your, you know, your feet on the ground, your you in the space. And then yeah. one of the key instructions is like after you after you've done all that focusing, is to just let go of it all as well. Yeah. So there's kind of actually like um, uh, contracting and expanding. Yes. Would you say that that was true to writing as well? So to attend yeah. to it, but then also just to f forget about it and then let's see what happens. <laughs> yes, and I'm glad, I'm very glad you mentioned this because I think this is a really important point, actually, that I suppose the form of attending that I'm talking about is, is the type that just lets itself be led by its mm. own discovering. So I think... Uh, what I've found with a lot of the a lot of the sort of advice about certain attention techniques of, of the kind you've just been describing is that, in a way, for me, they, they keep the sort of conscious mind a bit too awake, mm. and, and therefore they need the letting go for all the good stuff to, to happen. I suppose the kind of attention that I was trying to describe is the kind where there's there's both going on at once. So you've got the attention and the letting go happening all at once. And, and for me, that's 
that's really important, which is why I'm so glad you, you mentioned this, actually, because I, I think it's about letting your attention be led. Um, and the mind is both heightened and relaxed, I think, in those sort of states. Uh, again, this sounds very Zen, and I suppose, I suppose it is in a way. You know, you read, you read Zen in the Art of Archery, um, and... You know, they talk about staying relaxed at the point of utmost tension. Um, and that that's kind of the state or the ideal state that, that I was trying to, to describe there. So, so yeah, so I think there's these different ways ways of, of attending. There's one that, that stays very conscious and there's one that actually feels its way a little and just trusts trust the process and so it's already letting go even as it's attending and that's the kind of the, the most productive um, for me yeah yeah it kind of it feeds back into um what you were saying earlier about leaving space for the unknown it's the yeah. idea of like it's not just a list of things you can see and hear and and yes. touch and smell it's like but what am i feel it's yeah leaving space for that for that unknown for that less tangible Stuff absolutely. To yeah, it's precisely that, Cabri. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it, it, it's about it's about encountering what is unplanned. Yeah, mm. it, precisely that. Yeah. Not like our podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I think this is a beautiful model of letting things grow, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, putting putting people together and. Having conversation and seeing—I mean, because it is what happens in a good conversation, isn't it? It's actually it takes takes all these twists and turns, and so yeah, I, I think you you are creating precisely this kind of space. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Gregory. That was uh, really enjoyable, and, and it felt very nourishing to do that. Um, and, and I think that's that's what the those moments do create. It's something quite nourishing and brings brings alive. Yeah, conversations or poems or, or whatever it is when you want to create. Um, so yeah. thank you for your time. It's been my pleasure, real pleasure. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. So thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you so much. Um, your poem is still available at uh, Connolly's. You can still go and collect it if, if, um, yeah, if listeners want to do that. And also um, your work, Mask Work, is available from Nine Arches Press from the Nine Arches website. Yeah. Um, Highly recommend. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. And that's all for this episode of the Over Here podcast. Thank you for tuning in and listening. Thank you once again to our guest, Gregory Ledbetter. We'll leave a link to his collection in the description below, as well as the link to his launch event from Nine Arches Press, where you can hear him read some of the poems we talked about in this episode, as well as readings from guest poets Isabel Dixon and Patrick McGuinness. Make sure you go to www.theoverhere.app to find the rest of our blogs. We've got some nice video snippets, teasers of our poems that you can find. We've got a forum that you can sign into and add your own poetry advice for writing on location. And of course, download the app, go and collect some poems, find yourself in some spaces with a different poetic perspective. We'll catch you next time. Thank you once again. <laughs>